0: Hello, uh, can I speak to Liz Frazier, please?
1: Uh, she's sleeping. Uh, this is her assistant, actually.
0: Oh, I'm calling from the uh, art department at 4AD. We're putting the lyric sheet together um, for this album, and uh, we're trying to get lyrics for the song Ivo. And can you uh, Do you know, it's uh, kind of hard to pick off the record. I was wondering if um, Liz might be able to tell us. What Why do you need the lyrics? Well, for the lyric sheet we're going to make to go with the record. Oh,
1: okay, okay. Uh, she actually, uh, her lyrics... Um, Are right here. She, her notebook is right next to oh, me. Uh, I can actually Pe- read it to yeah, you I'll, I'll if you need those, that. I'll just write those down. Okay. You have a pen? So
0: this is for the song Ivo. Okay. Ivo, right. Okay. 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 You ready? Yeah, yeah. All right.
1: Peep, bow, peach, blow.
0: Peep, bow,
1: peach, bow No, no, no. No. Peep, bow. And by the way, that's hyphenated. Uh, peep, Pete, bow, hyphen, peach, blow. blow. peach,
0: blow. Yeah. Okay.
1: Pandora, pompadour. But, well, Pandora. Pandora. That's with Pandora. an O U. Possibly. Not like Pandora. It's smudged. There's some kind of liquid on it. So it's either Pandora or Pandora. Pan, pan, okay. Pompadour.
0: Pan, Pandora, Pompadour. Pale leaf,
1: pink, sweet. Okay, that one's pretty easy. The same okay. for me. Okay. okay. Part okay. animal, peep bow.
0: Part animal, peep bow. No, no, no.
1: Peep bow. Oh, oh peep oh.
0: Part he's, animal, He's peep. done
1: deer or a dog, peep peep bow.
0: He's dumb deer. No, no, no. Okay, hold on. No, no, a done the deer line, or a dog pee-pee. No, the
1: the line before that is part animal peep-bow. Okay. He's, done deer, he's bow. done deer or a dog pee-pee-bow.
0: He's done deer or a dog pee-pee-bow. No, no, no. peep
1: oh. No, let's start with the line before so you get kind of a running leap.
0: Uh,
1: uh, part animal peep-bow, he's duck. done deer or a dog pee pee d- bo.
0: Done deer?
1: No, no, no. It. You're starting it while I'm still saying it, so you're not getting it. All right.
0: It. You know what? I have a better idea. Why not instead of doing a lyric sheet, we'll just kind of do some like dreamy, gothic looking weird shit instead?
1: I I don't see how that would ever work, but do whatever you want. let's, Let's just try that. I have taken my shirt off tonight in honor of the extremely sensual band that we'll be talking about. But I've gotten ahead of myself here. I'm Dave Gebro. And I'm Joe Kennedy. Welcome to Discograffiti, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed.
0: Today, we'll be turning the spray cans on the Cocteau Twins, Scotland's ethereal amniotic Vibe Masters Super
1: floaty delight
0: Before we get started I want to note for the record that my shirt is on (laughs) Before we go too much further into this Because um, I know you guys are at home listening to this and I, I just, uh, you know, I want, I want, I don't want you to think we're both sitting here shirtless.
1: I'm sitting actually naked, swimming in amniotic we're not fluid. The, we're
0: not the red hot fucking Chili Peppers.
1: <laughs> I have a, I have a cock sock on.
0: So the way discography works is that it is a career overview of whichever artist we're looking at that week, and we are taking everything they ever did, every single, every album, every EP. In this case, many EPs. And we are giving you a rating and a giving you our opinions on... And we research the heck out of it. This is not just off the cuff. And we're listening to all these with fresh ears. We just listened to all these over the last week or so. We're giving you our current fresh takes. And we're
1: exploding with objective opinions.
0: Yeah, we were actually voted best opinions in the world in 2021 by Opinions Magazine.
1: So tonight we're talking about the Cocteau Twins. And I just want to say, for the record, that my introduction to the band came a little bit late. Uh, it was 1994, and I was going out with a, a girl named Tara. Uh, her brother, I'm going to call him Robert, because that was his name. <laughs> um, he gave me a mixtape that was expertly mixed. Now, I didn't, I had never heard anything of the Cocktail Twins before, and it's '94, so they're almost a done deal as a band. Um, and it was perfectly mixed. Uh, one track was bl- was blended and crossfaded into the other, and somehow I realized in retrospect he had actually put together an ultimate cons- cassette mix for me.
0: Uh, I you know to me the Cocteau Twins I you know in the their heyday was really in the eighties probably right. So I remember in high yeah. school. Um, some of the cooler, some of the kids who were cooler than me and had better taste than me, um, you know, there was a, there was a couple of girls who would like exchange mixtapes and like the mixtapes are kind of like, you know, uh, written in colored marker and like very artistic watercolory looking and, you know, would have like the sugar cubes on there and, um, dead can dance. Um, and so I was kind of associate Cocteau twins, uh, with sort of cool girl in high school who's a little bit more mature and. Uh, I didn't know any of the song titles. There was no song titles on that mixtape that,
1: um, that Robert had given me. Um, but, you know, extremely quick backstory. They were uh, The band came together in 79 and died in 1997. Um, Robin Guthrie and Will Hedgie started the band. I, I may be mispronouncing Hedgie. It's either Heggy or Hedgy. Mm-hmm. And I don't really care enough to find out because he sucks as a bassist. It's
0: really hard to find a YouTube clip of somebody saying his name.
1: <laughs> I've looked for hours. Um, anyway, in 1981 is when the band really pulled together because that's when R- Liz Fraser joined the band. And she really is, I mean, it, it, the, unquestionably the most talented person in that band. Um, and then Simon Raymond exploding their palette as a multi-instrumentalist wound up replacing Hedgie. Um, and they signed with four AD in 1982. So their first album comes out in 82 and it's called Garland's. Isn't it Joe?
0: It sure is. Now I'm going to go, I, you know, I really did not know a lot about the Cocteau twins even coming into this podcast. I was familiar with a couple of their records. Um, but um, listening to it all kind of in a row like this um, is pretty interesting. I'm definitely glad I did it. And I it's feel like, also
1: admittedly sammy.
0: Yeah, but I feel like I kind of discovered a lot of things that I'll probably be listening to for many years now, records that I kind of skipped, because I just sort of assumed it was kind of sammy. Like, I know a couple of these records that, you know, I don't need to really go into all of them but I'm glad I definitely did the, you know, I'm really glad I did this. Here's and, um, the
1: overview is that you know and this doesn't ruin anything because the, the uh, you know the excellence of this episode has nothing to do with the arc of the band but um, but basically you have a couple classic records and otherwise uh, albums that really lend themselves to the playlist format because if you just pull out all the best stuff you're talking some of the best music ever made there's no question
0: I, I don't know if I like them that much but I, um, I liked there i'll say this about them though they really shaped the sound of what became indie in the 90s they sort of seem to be their precursor to shoegaze in a way seemed very mm. influential on that very and then other bands like kind of like the Sundays or the Sugar Cubes that there's just a sort of like uh, rhythm and ethereal style that, that that's kind of ha- that's their fingerprints that was and lush it became lush like this, this, s- the sound I, I of i love uh, that stuff i mean i'm a yeah, sucker for that kind of the thing. sound of 120 minutes the MTV show that yeah. they really had a i mean the, the half the bands in there kind of sound you know it's uh, another very great indebted one? to the, the Twins. first
1: few eps that the,
0: that lush released yeah sure i love those amazing yeah.
1: but anyway garlands comes out in 82 um this is <clears throat> let's just get the two rock critic nerd words out of the way f- first spiky and angular and
0: i won't <laughs> use those words again <laughs> <laughs> because they never uh, do those things again really
1: yeah yeah it's true too but uh this basically this album basically embodies the 4ad aesthetic uh whereas the rest of their releases transcend the aesthetic and are thus more interesting but um it's rudimentary as fuck and derivative as can be but there's that fucking voice topping it off um but at the end of the at the end of the day, seriously, though, fuck that bassist.
0: Well, there there's kind of a uh, little offshoot of punk that uh, I, you know I don't really know if it has this uh, do you call it dark wave. I don't really know what dark wave is, but it's know. sort of like Susie and the Banshees, Tones on Tail, Bauhaus, Joy Division, The, the Cure, Joy Division. The sort of like um, that very cold
1: minimalist right, aesthetic, mo-
0: kind of moody. It's not really quite new wave. Usually, it's kind of guitar based. Melodically,
1: but, the riffs are all just um, a guitar riff, uh, one chord. And then a step down and then back right. up. And yeah, this
0: record down. Garland's has a weird sense of uh, it's It's kind of amateurish in a way. They kind of like don't really you, I can never really tell what key they're in. The chords seem to kind of move around a little randomly. They didn't really have songcraft figured out. They were kind of just making a noise at this point. They the were basically the
1: Shags with a great singer at the front.
0: Yeah, they're not quite that primitive, but um, also there's it's, it's hard to really know where they are in the song. Is this a verse or a chorus? Is this you know? A, you it know. was
1: really successful. Did you, did you? It was number two in the indie album chart. Yeah, in, right. They kind Britain. of got a lot of attention right away, which is which is odd to me because this is obviously a band that came, that took a, just a little bit of time to. Come come into their own they had not uh come into their own by this point anyway i don't mind uh, necessarily derivative but ultimately though the songs on garlands just ain't there and that's the main problem i love the song wax and Wayne, but other than that i give it one and a half stars
0: i gave it two but i will acknowledge it's mostly kind of for archival interest if you're a big if you're really finding that you're super into the cocteau twins um, But Wax and Wayne
1: is a good representative song for the record, I think.
0: Yeah. Later that year, um,
1: they released an EP, uh, still in 1982, called Lullabies. Lullabies um, came out just a few weeks after Garland's did. It's more of the same with a notably fuller sound to it, but unfortunately the songwriting still sucks, uh, so I give it two stars.
0: I gave it two and a half, and there's one song that I liked, Feather or Blades. That kind of seems more like a real song with real kind of changes to it. And it was kind of like, a, I think, a step forward. The EPs usually have, um, there's kind of a lot of cocktail EPs that are interspersed throughout the albums uh, in the 80s. And they're extremely important. Yeah, but they're us- usually the structure is there's one killer song that's kind of the centerpiece of it. And then there's a couple, maybe one or two other cool ones. This one, they're not quite there yet because they, they aren't at that level. But that song to me, Feather or Blades, was kind of the centerpiece one you know it's you lullabies. know it's
1: funny now that i think about it Of course, the structure of all the EPs is, as you say, there's the one centerpiece song. But then I feel like in order to make up for the lack of quality in the rest of the songs, they get progressively more flamboyantly titled. (laughs) until they're just like completely fucking lullabies.
0: That's pretty chill.
1: Yeah, that is pretty chill. But it builds from there. (laughs) Um, Ultimately, uh, more of the same. I give it two stars. Uh, Okay, moving into 1983 Peppermint Pig EP. All right, so this is the last recording they did with uh, their shitty bassist, Will Hedgy, or Haggy. Peppermint Pig is the only time the Cocteau Twins also used an outside producer, and it was Alan Rankine, or Rankine of the Associates. I looked for days for a YouTube clip of somebody pronouncing his name. It came up empty-handed. Uh, so Liz Fraser referred to Peppermint Pig as all we had at the time. Robin Guthrie less charitably described it as shit in a 1983 interview with Sounds, going on to note that it was a bad mixture, a bad song, bad producer, bad band. Basically nothing to recommend this release. It is as shitty as he says. I would give it one and a half stars. And this is... Gets my worst album uh, review, even though it's a um, award, even though it's an, an EP.
0: I didn't. I forgot to rate this one, but that one and a half sounds about right. Um, one point of interest um, as we're going through some of these early records here, if you are an electronic music fan or musician, they used pretty much um, every kind of drum machine. The, the, the Garland's was done on an eight oh eight, and it's the weirdest sounding eight oh eight. Usually, an eight oh eight is like a big boomy, thunderous. You know, it's like the kind of drum machine you hear in Miami bass and you know, like eight oh eights and heartbreak, but they used it in this weird, like tinny kind of way. So you can recognize all the samples that are in the eight oh eight, but it's a very strange sounding eight oh eight. Do do sort of a so we didn't really
1: touch on this, but the, the Cocteau twins are actually as famous for Liz Fraser's voice as they are for the fact that they're incessantly drum machined. So right. can you give us a fast-forward cue history? Yeah. So
0: then they, they kind of use all the big the the, the so this record um, the the Peppermint Pig EP um, they used the Lindrum on that they would use they would later on use you know like uh, the Emu drumulator um, all to me all the earlier records they kind of they've used pretty much every single kind of famous and. Interestingly, like one notch below the top things that were available, the, the really like posh bands at the time were using a Fairlight for drums, which was essentially a sampler.
1: Yeah, was it didn't that start off with Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush? He,
0: yeah, like a, you know, Shock the Monkey or whatever was heavily the monkeys, uses the Fairlight. Uh, of Love. They were they were very expensive. Light. They were like yeah. forty thousand dollars or something, and they were out of reach to pretty much everybody except big studios. You know,
1: one of the things about the Cocteau twins that you know creates this uh, unique duality is. The majestic soaring quality for voice paired with the mechanical precision of the drum machine.
0: Yeah, so that's that's the thing that they have this very floaty kind of uh, ethereal atmospherics. But then the song they never they never yeah they never really had they they always use drum machines. Everything is very metronomic, and even in the way that they're programmed. It doesn't. It's, uh, it's
1: not off-putting to me, but I could see how it would no, I, be off-putting. I like
0: it. Yeah, I like it. I, the stuff that's earlier, where they have the more primitive drum machines, to me sounds cooler. Later on, they are able to get samplers, and they are able to get like fancier, more "quote unquote" real-sounding drum machines. I like that stuff less. I tend to like the sound of the kind of janky, cheaper drum machines they were using earlier.
1: It's almost fucking uh, Einsteins de Noi or something. Yeah.
0: It's, when you get like into the '90s, you have drum machines like the sampling rate is better, so they sound they at the time. they thought, oh, this sounds more like real drums. But actually, it's more stiff sounding. All
1: right, so moving on. We got uh, Head Over Heels in 1983. Okay, so this is their second album, and it's a transitional release for the band after a year of sounding just like their record collection.
0: Yeah, this one, they start getting kind of crazy with the uh, palette they're using. They start really turning the reverb like because that
1: fucking bassist is gone and they can start actually giving birth to who they are.
0: Yeah, this one has some crazy sonics to it. There's this kind of real like big low end rumble on it. Like there's just this kind of like like cloud of um, like it's like the reverb is turned like all the way so it's just the wet side of the signal on some things and it's like it's reverberating on itself and making this like cloud of low end. Like it's uh they're definitely going for uh, more avant-garde kind of production like really like pushing the reverb and the bass and stuff on this record and this uh,
1: this is where you know in what I think is a fair world they would start to get noticed and get accolades because they're really putting themselves together here I mean it's you can uh I, I want to talk a little bit about um, you know her style of or style of lyric writing mm-hmm. which is I don't even know if she pre-writes this stuff but um it's you know, a notorious thing that she, for a lot of her career, would just sing syllables, nonsense syllables. And, you know, there's an interesting um, push and pull throughout the career because the more she is able to crystallize what it is she's trying to say, um, the less the music had that sort of otherworldly intensity. And this is a very unique thing that I feel like, you know, off the top of my head, it's... uh, you know, Demo from uh, from Can mm-hmm. did something Cigarose, si- similar. Cigaroes, I Hope Hopelandic, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that what they call yeah, it? Yeah. Um, and that to me is intriguing because I don't
0: really find lyrics as interesting as something like this. I, to me, there's a sweet spot with her vocal style and her approach where, if when I can't when I can't tell that it's gibberish, I like it better. When it's obvious to me that I'm hearing gibberish syllables, oh, I understand. It starts to kind of be distracting to me. Well, like to I me, start making up my kind of words, my own kind of words to it. It seems kind of silly. When I, but sometimes yeah. it's mixed in a way where it sounds enough like words where it really works. That's to me the sweet spot. Well, like okay. I will say, I just listened to all of these, all whatever ten of these in a row. So. It was, I think, more apparent and obvious to me because I was really kind of intently listening.
1: Well, when I hear the... Okay, the first great song that they ever released, I
0: think, is on this record called Sugar Hiccup. That's a clear turning point in their career. So
1: Sugar Hiccup those are basically the only two words that I can understand in that song. So, I mean, you can still hear most of the words she's singing here and there, but it's starting to be plunged in, into an opaque murk.
0: Yeah, that's enough to, for it to hang on. Just the words, Sugar Higgup, are, are, you kind of fill in your own blanks to the rest of the song. Yeah,
1: yeah. And then things really start to take off for the band. And, you know, although, although there's still a preponderous goth influence on head over heels. Uh, Now we're starting to tilt toward the celestial. And for example, like the breakdown in gold dust rush is far more like glisteningly psychedelic than it is. dark and I I have in
0: my notes, it's an epic soundscape Uh, to me. This album is where they kind of get away. They start getting away from goth and it's kind of more, it's moves away from that kind of dark and cartoony kind of goth vibe into something more melancholy. It's not a great record. You could just hear it's, it's, you know,
1: it's what um nerds like to call nascent,
0: yeah, I also, I found that listening to it start to finish the the um the production being so bathed in reverb and so kind of like uh, it got it got ear fatiguing to me. I got yeah, yeah. I, I, by the end of it, I felt like my ears kind of hurt a little bit. That's kind of a real phenomenon. Um, it just kind of has a little bit of a harshness to it, where it's kind of tough to take it in all at once. I, I found it fatiguing.
1: Yeah, I mean, overall, "Sugar Hiccup" is the is the the clear standout. "In the Gold Dust Rush" is also a very good song, and "Glass Candle Grenades" is good. Um, you know, sugar hiccup is the real beginning. Otherwise, overall, a little too goth for my tastes. I'll give it two and a half overall.
0: I gave it three, and I'm probably kind of grading on a curve a little bit. This, uh, you know, it's mo-
1: interesting. You don't like it as much as me, but all your reviews. <laughs> well, are Well, yeah, higher.
0: I kind of as I was saying, I'm kind of getting. Uh, I think I'm kind of doing them on a curve because to me, most of their records are kind of, or a lot of their records are kind of four star records to me, where they have a very consistent. Where I'm thinking they're making four, 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 four. This seems kind of on a way to those four star records. So, yep. The <laughs> cat so that's maybe why I'm why I'm thinking of that as a, as a three.
1: This is this is kind of a step one towards you know what they're really gonna start. They've
0: they kind of they've gotten the formula together. They do a lot of things that are kind of in waltz time and three four time that have kind of a waltzy kind of swing to them. They've got the big kind of cavernous reverbs. They're really kind of doing the thing with the glassy sounding chorusy guitars. The kind of all the elements are there. And um, but they, I, w- I want maybe I really, not the songs quite as much, but the elements uh, are coming into place. I
1: want to move on because the next release to me is you know if head over heels or the is the contractions sunburst and snowblind EP from 1983 from later that year uh, to me that's the true birth of the band yeah, so very strong you get uh, sugar EP. hiccup and three other tunes okay mm-hmm. so sugar hiccup is, is a classic and then from the flagstones is just outstanding yeah, that's an I mean, amazing song really one of the an absolute stone cold classic every last moment. Uh, The song Hitherto is good. Last tune ain't so hot, but oh well. This is the sound of a band coming into sharp focus. And frankly, it's just exciting to bear witness to.
0: Well, yeah, it's almost like the previous, like Head Over Heels, it's like they were building up towards Sugar Hiccup. They did that, and then this is like where they launched from Sugar Hiccup into the next phase.
1: Yeah, they found what their thing was. Yeah, And now they're, you know... uh, you know, moving right into 84, they did the Spanglemaker EP, which is, you know, another freaking classic. Um, it's the first recording that they issued after uh, their new bassist joined the band, Simon Raymond. Mm-hmm. And the EP featured uh, two versions of Pearly Dewdrops Drops and two B-sides. To me, this is where they ascend into the heavens and become an absolutely great band.
0: Now, this one... I, this one's very beloved by the fans, and this is probably their most well-regarded EP. Um, certainly, everything on it is good. The the pre- I like the other one better. I, I think I slightly prefer... Um, what's the one before it? Sunburst and Snowblind. Sunburst Blind. and Snowblind.
1: But... Um, That's fucking madness. So, um, you know, this is... The Spanglemaker is... Uh, it's one of my all-time favorite songs. It's got its... It's hands on the on the fucking fuse box of musical dynamics because it's got this uh, intense simmer. You can tell it's building up to something. And then it explodes into this firework of inexplicable beauty at three minutes and 35 seconds. That is one of my favorite intense high points in a song. And it's drawn out. To where you think your heart's gonna explode if you're Dave Gebro.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the end really soars. Um, yeah, that, that's and then pearly dewdrops drops is great, and then that's Pep- the classic Coctovian three four waltz kind yeah, of yeah. thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, It's a, it's like a perfect song. And then pepper tree is very good. So you know, I don't know. This one I give five stars.
0: I gave it four, um, but I know this one's very beloved by all their fans. Um,
1: it's so goddamn good. It's It's definitely regarded
0: as a classic. That's for sure. Yeah, come on, stand
1: next to your. Who cares what it's regarded as? Well, I'm saying if you think I'm
0: underrating it, fine. I'm in the minority.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So moving on from Spanglemaker in '84, they did something that '84 was a big year for them. You have the Spanglemaker EP, peak
0: cocktail kind of. You
1: have this Mortal Coil, and then you have Treasure. I mean that's a really good year. So moving in from Spangle Maker, we have This Mortal Coil, it'll end in tears. What now this is, is the first
0: time I was ever aware of Cocteau Twins was because I was a fan of Big Star and there's a couple of Big Star covers on the This Mortal Coil album.
1: I will say I never thought this was a good album. I thought I always thought that the the two Cocteau Twins Orbit related songs were the only good tunes on this and otherwise it was branding that felt like it, uh, Just kind of limp to me. Did you like
0: this shit? Yeah, well the songs that were really kind of to me the uh, The calling card songs were the big star covers as the ones I was interested in And those were like kind of okay Yeah, they I, were
1: not I didn't think they were that good. I didn't love what is really. it kangaroo kangaroo
0: and, and uh, Holocaust
1: yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, well Whatever, this is kind of the uh, apotheosis of the 4AD spooky goth vibe. Um, notwithstanding the cocteau tracks, I stand by my opinion that it's also a total fucking snooze. Notwithstanding Song to the Siren, which was originally um, a Tim Buckley's song on the album Star Sailor. And they do a much better version than he does. And then Another Day, which uh, was originally a Roy Harper song, and they do a much better version than he does. So those two songs are fantastic. That's why I'm giving it two and a half stars. Otherwise, um, I, I don't know what to say. Leave the rest behind and put those two songs on, a, on, a, on our playlist and head over to discograffiti.com.
0: I, had a, I rated this, the Cocteau Twin songs only. So I rated them four stars. Just for okay,
1: so on that basis, I would give it five stars. Okay, all right, it's good. Fair <laughs> enough.
0: We'll, we let's little we'll Siskel and Ebert this shit. Thumbs up on that. <laughs>
1: yeah, definitely. Thumbs pass, thumbs fail. way up. Pass. Pass, way. pass. Pass. <laughs> thumbs way up if it was a single, <laughs> or a co-single. All right, so the crowning achievement of 1984, uh, and my best album award goes to Treasure. Treasure is very beloved by fans. Uh, because of the celestial majesty of the songwriting, which is very uh, consistent on this record, plus uh, the really uh, high rate of intense uh, Liz Fraser vocal performances. I mean, it's just an incredible bullheaded charge into the ethereal, and so here we are.
0: Yeah, so this record I was familiar with before we did this podcast. Uh, this is kind of the most, probably the most acclaimed overall one. This is kind of a consensus, the one that everyone kind of uh, would give a five star to, you know, um, this is, this kind of sound in this record is what I think of when I think of Cocteau twins. Um, this kind of has all of the elements. Um, the, the, the palette is very defined, and um, it's kind of like they've been taking what they've been doing over those strong EPs over the previous year and doing it over the length of a full-length record. And they finally cracked the code. And
1: frankly, this is, um, I think, as good as they got in the 80s. I felt like it was variations on a theme for a while.
0: They still had great songwriting, but this is
1: uh, kind of the template. So When
0: you listen to it now, you know, if you give this record a spin, try to contextualize it in 1984, It was pretty ahead of its time. There's nothing like this. I think it's very ahead of its time for 84. Um, But
1: before we go into the actual songs, I don't know if you know this, but um, uh, Iva Watts Russell, who is the 4AD guy, uh, originally tried to hire Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir to
0: produce the record. Right. Did you know that? Yeah, and they passed.
1: Yeah, he passed. Uh, Eno felt the band didn't need him, and so uh, Guthrie wound up producing it.
0: Yeah, uh, you can see why Eno told them, you know, you don't need me. The, the, their strength really is production and arrangement, you know, um, or at least it's one of their strengths. You know, the, these records sounds, you know, they they sound of their time for sure. There are definitely eighties elements to them, but the the transportive kind of quality of the music hasn't really diminished. It's Not still at all. it still sounds very otherworldly. You know, um, And it's still got that intensity. So it's, I don't see wh- how Eno would have really helped them, really. I don't see what he would have... He, you he just
1: would have cranked the reverb up to 11, maybe. And It's put already some, at 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so,
0: that's how you're going to fix the Cocteau Twins, more reverb. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Like. Just slather that shit on. Um, so, I mean, there's so many great songs on this record. And right out of the gate, you got Ivo, which is excellent. You have Lorelei, which... You know, anyone who ever says, I I don't know if I like the Cocteau Twins, that's the song I generally put on.
0: I feel like that one I was aware of, like when I was a teenager, like they'd play it on like at night clubs and stuff. It sounds really great over a club PA. Yeah. Um, It it has that kind of like kind of big anthemic kind of thing to it. I
1: honestly am never not in the mood to hear it, which is a a good thing for a record. It's also
0: my mom's name, Lorelai.
1: Nice. Yeah. That's sweet. That's a great song for an unusual. Hi, name.
0: mom. I hope you're not listening to this. Mm.
1: Hi, mom. Um, if my
0: mom is listening to this, she would have definitely quit by now. There's yeah, no way yeah, she yeah. would be twenty something minutes into this cocktail yeah, twins. Yeah, because separation.
1: my mom just my mom is a big fan of the latter era cocktail <laughs> twins, but not the, not the early <laughs> stuff. Obviously, five stars with this one. I mean, this is an absolute classic record. And as far as I'm concerned, their best album, and objectively speaking, one of the greatest albums of all time.
0: Five stars for me too. If if you like Cocteau Twins, this is you'll like this. This is the place is to the start, one. basically. Yeah, that's actually a good. That's a good way to put it. This is I would start here. Yeah. Um, if you're not into this, I you need don't really probably the, need to go any further. further yeah. yeah.
1: So moving into 85, we have um, it's a transitional year because they don't have any uh, grand statements, they don't have any LPs, but three EPs and a, and a uh, an appearance on a compilation. So kicking off the year, we have the I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, and I could care less IKEA Guinea EP. Mm, sounds right. Okay. So more of the same, Touched by Celestial Magic, you have, and just as Joe perfectly described it earlier, you have the one central track, which is Ikea Guinea, it's one of their touchstone releases, but then it kind of loses steam, Kookaburra is next, and that's, that's a very good song, then Quizquaz, or however the fuck you pronounce it, um, that's
0: a decent song, um, I would give it three and a half stars. Yeah, I gave it three. Um, you know, she's kind of really more than just a singer. She's kind of really like a key instrument in the band. Um, her they kind of treat her voice kind of like a synth a lot of times. The uh, the, the other tunes Kookaburra is kind of by the numbers but pretty cool. Um, and then the one that was interesting to me was Rococo, which is an instrumental. And it's kind of boring without the vocal on it. Without the her, without the vocal on it, it yeah, really I don't doesn't. Really, I don't really. It doesn't really go to that same uh, stratosphere. You know, where I mean,
1: those are. I mean, the music is basically they're just beds for her to right. lay. Right, and her I mean, vo-
0: her vocals kind of just like pure raw emotion. Yeah, and it's not really any l- words, but so, a lot of times I feel like it conveys emotions, even though the, there's no words behind and the,
1: it. The music sometimes has uh, dynamics, but other times there's just a, an amniotic float where it's not really going anywhere and so without vocals that's tough yeah agreed can be tough
0: anyway so pretty pretty cool ep though
1: yeah yeah definitely uh you know go to discograffiti.com look at our playlist because ikea guinea's on it uh tiny dynamine ep from 85. you have the central song which is one of their greatest songs pink orange red uh it's really like floating in outer space and one of their best deep deep cuts of, for sure.
0: Yeah, that one has the feels for me. That one is like is, is very kind of emotional to me. Um. The, the, like a very evocative kind of song, and think the title really suits it well. It's perfect. Um, this is a really good EP, Tiny Dynamite. I, I liked pretty much every song on this one. I like the rest of them. Ribbed and veined
1: is you know a bit spa music-y, but still really pleasant. This also Titan has more. Tiger. This has
0: more stuff on it than their usual EP. This is kind Salt of Salt
1: Titan iten These song titles are <laughs> fucking great.
0: I give this EP three stars. I give this one four. I quite like this one.
1: For a guy who doesn't like the Cocteau Twins as much as me, you sure like the Cocteau Twins better than I me. Think
0: I'm, I think I have like a curve going on with my interest in I th- them. I think so.
1: I love how we're using the same rating system, but we have different rules for it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sounds very scientific. <laughs> it is. All right. So uh, moving towards the end of 85, we have the Echoes in a Shallow Bay EP. So this came two weeks after Tiny Dynamite. No classics on this one, as far as I'm concerned. Just
0: diminishing returns,
1: as far as these EPs go. I give this one two and a half stars.
0: I give it the same. And I, this this kind of this came as a you can get it I guess for a while it came out as a twofer with Tiny Dynamine. So if you put them both together, it, they're kind of like almost a full length. But the Tiny Dynamine songs songs are way stronger. Yeah, they have like.
1: they have sort of a diminishing returns thing happening with their EPs in the mid '80s, which is unfortunate because. That's where a lot of the, you know, the magic first sprouted for the band. Yeah. 1985 kind of ended uh, with, uh, you know, a little... Well, actually, it was a, it's a great song. It's just one song on a comp. Don't even remember the name of the comp, but uh, the track is called Milla Millenary, and it is one of their best songs. I, I just give that song five stars, um, but you can find it on our, on our playlist. So 1986... Is a pretty solid year for them. Uh, they release a record, an EP, and a collab- collaborative album with Harold Budd. More on that later. But um, so 86 kicks off with Victoria Land. Um, no Simon Raymond in this one, just uh, the two lovebirds. It's very austere, not much bass or percussion to speak of, super billowy. Um basically like watching a pair of lace curtains blow gently in the breeze for 30 uninterrupted
0: minutes. Yeah, have we mentioned yet that there are a couple that the uh They're the lovers. Team? Yeah, so that's kind of that comes more uh into it's becomes more important later in the story. But um becomes the fissure point. <laughs> right. Always start a band with your wife. Yeah. Or right. husband. Or your spouse. Right. Always start a band with your spouse
1: so uh, there's there's a this is a very consistent record for me i didn't think the thing about this one is it doesn't reach these intense heights that a lot of their other records do but i mean you have you have a couple of absolute classics in "Wales tales and little spacey mm-hmm. and then you have a string of very good songs like lazy calm fluffy Tufts," throughout the dark months of april and may now this uh, is
0: another one I feel like I like this one Better than you do This one I liked quite a lot This is not really One of their more Heralded albums This is kind no. of a um, This is kind of an oddball It's quiet um, It doesn't have that bottom Yeah there's almost No drums on it at all I think what, maybe one song Has a little like CR78 drum machine Ticking away a little bit In the background But at that element The big kind of boomy drums that are uh, part of their sound are not on this at all. This is almost kind of like an ambient record. This,
1: this is one of the toughest albums to dance to. And God damn, have I
0: tried. <laughs> it's
1: um, a, it, I, I think it's a minor release ultimately, but it's, it, it really is one of their most consistent.
0: albums. I like this kind of thing a lot. I listen to a lot of ambient music. I'm kind of like this. Me one, too. You know that this one seems um, very, uh, listenable to me. Um, in curious way, what you a, give it in a way that i give it four stars okay i give it three and a half yeah. we're basically on the same page with yeah. it um you it know, is it is a little bit almost like new age kind of vibes in, in places but again that's that's music that i kind of i you know that's, but then ultimately i like goopy uh, ultimately
1: this shit. template became like the you know the marshmallow goo that the end of their career became yeah, you know, I mean that's they their, their, uh, you know, it's like the oven was open too early and it melted. I mean, that was basically the, the those intense peaks were shaved off because the consistency Well, they kind
0: of got back to doing the other thing after, that they used to do. After this. this this is really a one-off. This isn't really yeah, this yeah. is kind of a dead end that they didn't really stay down. It's kind of like it is really like if you took one of their records and subtracted a lot of stuff off it. Like Yeah. Uh
1: Loves Easy Tears EP uh They're rocking again. Yeah, it was the eighth EP released by the band, their last EP for 4AD, and their last EP for another seven years until Snow, which is more on that later. But, you know, I just want to say before we get into the actual songs that pre-internet, if you wanted to really follow a band that was trying uh, intentionally to leave a breadcrumb trail... Uh, you would have to really shell out for EPs and singles and
0: things like that. You to get them in the import section.
1: Yeah, you had to really be on top of it to weather all the changing currents of a band's sound as it was growing. Because, you know, these EPs, a lot of these bands were changing and growing on these EPs because it felt like there was less at stake. This was a big thing. It's it's a you know a really great idea. I mean, do a low stakes thing, yeah. make your best music, and then that's the template for the LPs you'll make. I mean, that was basically their uh, their MO for quite a while. It's kind
0: of a British thing that make the to make the single or the EP that comes in between the album. Yeah. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's an American thing to collate that stuff and sell more albums. The title track on Love's Easy Tears is another one that sounds... It's, a classic. It's, it's like, it's kind of, it's almost, it's kind of as close as they get to commercial or something. It's like, it's yeah. almost kind of like a pop song. Yeah, it's one of their best songs. And, you know,
1: uh, for me here, you know, the, their feet have been kind of stuck in goo for a little while and they've been, you know, kind of floating around. Um Without the that spiky intensity that the, that they have. And here it's returned. Um, not just massage table music anymore. Love's Easy Tears is fantastic. And then what a fucking title. Orange Appled is the other um, standout classic for me. Another good song with those
0: eyes, that mouth. Um, it's a great EP. Yeah, I like what she does with her vocals a lot here, too. She's sort of adding to her bag of tricks. Like some things almost sound kind of like bird song. Um, some things are like very synthy kind of things. She's getting. She's really like. Uh, she's awesome. Yeah, she's very talented. Her the the gibberish syllables. It's it's hard. I think it'd be really hard to pull off. Like, you know, like she's she kind of it's kind of a magic trick she manages to do with it. I think most people would sound pretty ridiculous trying to sing like that.
1: And you know, like an overarching theme of their career for me is you know the transition from uh, not needing to find a way to communicate clearly, but using just the the power of her voice to convey emotion and, and then the clarity that her later actual lyrics have dissipates and pulls from the music in a way that is, uh, kind of a shame but also a testament to how powerful all yeah those... it's
0: kind of the other end of the coin when you when the words do become discernible and you start paying more attention to them it's like it's almost like the best case would be like sort of the way that uh, my bloody valentine manages to do it like they do they do it, it's i don't know any of the words really to any my bloody valentine song no. i know maybe a few they're real words though and it, and it doesn't get distracting to me like Liz Fraser's voice can get sometimes yeah sometimes when I notice it it can be distracting it can overtake for sure yeah um
1: I give this one four stars I also
0: gave this four stars
1: and then the next one is a collaborate there was still 1986 it's a collaboration with Harold budd uh, who's you know a renowned Brian Eno collaborator. Uh, and pianist
0: yeah he's um uh, kind of from the minimalist school of composing kind of um he he ended up sort of I think mostly being a figure in the world of ambient music really he's I guess you call him a composer but he makes these very spacious um very meditative uh piano pieces
1: and he, he did, uh, you know, I, I've heard
0: a lot of his stuff. and I, I frac- I've I kind of re- honestly kind of searched out everything he ever did, really, which a, wasn't and, a ton. And,
1: there's, and uh, frankly, there's not a lot of magic in most of what he did. But uh, the collaborations with Eno, especially, uh, mainly because it was like a white hot period in Eno's career. He couldn't do any wrong. so
0: I think also Eno kind of discovered Harold Budd. Um, Harold Budd was kind of toiling away kind of in academia, and um, Eno was sort of, he was teaching at CalArts, I think. Um, Yeah, he he taught at CalArts, and somehow a tape he made got in Eno's hands and um you know kind of plucked him out of obscurity and the those records that he made with eno that i mean there's the pearl and then there's another one like ambient 2, the, the, the plateau of Mirror, Mirror which is excellent yeah, a so, great great album and it's a perfect collaboration um but you know, the I, but the
1: pearl especially you, so this is not an an album that is well known mm-hmm. and the pearl which is from 1984 side 1 especially is in my estimation the high point of ambient music, yeah, one, definitely one of the greatest albums. It's not, ambient music it's albums not ever wallpaper. Made. I mean, this is like uh, insanely evocative music. Um, absolutely, the most calming. But the record is mostly ever. just
0: Harold Budd playing, and then Eno treating his piano, right? Um,
1: like little, like, uh, like touches of sense.
0: So states. this record with the cocktails is '86. It's a couple of years later, and um, it's kind of a split record. There are songs there. It's kind of like four Harold Budd songs and four cocteau songs, and then they well, kind of like they, collaborate with each other. Collaborate, they definitely no, they collaborate. Liz Fraser
1: is not on for right. the eight songs. But some
0: of them are distinctly Harold Budd written pieces. Right, that the right. Cocteau's That's kind of on. The name
1: Cocteau on. Twins is not even on the release. Right, um, it credits the the three members: so Liz Fraser, Robin Guthrie, and Simon Raymond, and Bud individually. Yeah.
0: Um, Harold Budd is playing on this record the Yamaha CP70, which is a very 1980s like yacht rock kind of piano sound. It's the piano that's on like Private Eyes by & Oates. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little, it's it's very 80s this sounding. I, I think in a good way. Um, but here's one of the reasons why I love this record. Possibly
1: the main reason is I, I, you know, very clear in why one of the reasons why I love this band is that obliteration of meaning. Uh, in favor of you know intensity and you know, conveyance of emotion. But I think at this point, the immolation of meaning is ba- basically become the name of the game. So we go from singing decipherable lyrics, two snatches of phonetic sounds that have no meaning, to Liz Fraser disappearing throughout half the record, which is a natural progression for the band. and then a new sound is born out of that. Uh, I think ultimately a wonderful record. I give it four stars.
0: I also gave this four. A really great one-off. I did not know this existed. You know, when I saw this on the list of records, I was like, what? This is a thing? Because it's not listed in their, in their discography, really. It's kind of hard to find because it's not credited to Cocteau Twins. Um, but I really like both sides of it, the, the kind of more Harold Budd-driven pieces and the um, Cocteau... There are, you know, there are some things that are in that very cocktail style, you know, the cocktail waltz kind of thing. Um, she Will Destroy You. I like that tune a lot. That's the
1: classic yeah. of the bunch for, yeah. the, for the
0: Fraser tracks. Yeah, that's really super ethereal. That's like a next level ethereal.
1: Yeah, Ooze Out and Away One How is so fucking super yeah. floaty. It's as floaty as the title. It is such a great yeah, song. Super
0: uh, epic closer yeah yeah this record's really cool um, it, it's
1: it's great there and the bud stuff is fantastic uh, away from his Eno collaborations, this is the best he ever did um in another setting
0: yeah I and I think this is also like this is like the eno record that they never made, but they kind of did because they did this instead yeah you know
1: yeah yeah this is uh this is definitely for a side project it's definitely uh, an essential release so moving on into nineteen eighty seven. Uh, Not a busy time for the band, Uh, but in 1987, all they have is uh, one tune on a comp called Lonely is an Eyesore. It's a tune called Crushed, and it's a classic, crucial track in their discography. Go to discograffiti.com and visit the playlist for Crushed. Anyway, moving on into 1988, because I know Joe doesn't know Crushed. Yeah. Do you? I don't. I'm a completist. <laughs> After all, the show is called the Sky Graffiti. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: let's turn our spray cans on 1988 Bluebell Knoll. There is a faction of the fanhood uh, that believes this to be, uh, you know, one of their best, or if not their best. But at this point, they've signed with Capitol Records to distribute in the U.S. Uh, the big still, time, still
0: on 4AD in England But they're going to get a bigger push They're not going to be in the import section finally
1: but just, So the big time is starting to beckon This is the next stage of their growth Just kicking in Kind of like their Revolver Side 1 is great Side 2 is kind of limp So Bluebell Knoll is fucking fantastic Carolyn's fingers, best song on the album Suckling the Mender is a great song And then you have Athol Bros and For Phoebe, Still a Baby. Those are really the only standout tracks for me. Transitional record, three and a half stars, Joe. Uh,
0: I gave this one four. And this is one of the ones that I kind of found most surprising that I liked as much as I did. I remember this one a little bit because this came out, what, 88, I guess? 88. So this is when I worked at a record store when I was in high school. And this... um, this record was definitely played a bunch. Um, at this point, like you know, going through their whole discography, I started to kind of reflect on like where they're going and what's you know, they're kind of just very subtly altering the palette of things with each release. Um, this there's, one has there's growth, sp- and yeah. you can
1: hear it, especially when you do a trawl like we've done.
0: Yeah, I, that's kind of what I was getting at when you hear it all laid out, kind of all right in a row. Um, this there there are they definitely had a slow kind of slow burn kind of growth through all these records they're kind of just very slowly refining it i think bluebell Knoll, i i think the fans like a lot i don't think this is really considered like one of their definitive classics this is maybe like kind of like their third most well known record I
1: just i just read a thing in mojo magazine that um uh, the other songwriter, Mickey Bereni, or uh-huh. whatever her name is, right. um, she was just saying how this is her favorite Cocteau Twins record, which I don't get. I mean, I to me, this is clearly not their best, but um, but there's great songs on it, and you know, now if you really look at the timeline, you know, for the last few years, they're churning
0: out stuff. At yeah, a that, high that's in, that's in my notes. So then they're, they're slowing down. From '84 to '88, they did a lot.
1: Yeah, but not even. I mean, 1987 they released one song. Well,
0: I guess 84 to 86 is really there the, where they had a lot of. But it, they're still yeah. going strong to me. Um, like, like this record seemed to just kind of pick up where they left off. Even even if you know, two years to make a record was kind of a, without EPs in between was kind of long for them at the time. You know, these guys obviously, you know, as the 80s became the
1: 90s, it was a different deal for them. And uh, as far as their recognition and um, and uh, the crystallization of their sound and the lyrics being decipherable, not only decipherable, but extremely hearable. Right. Um, so but despite all their success, not not everything was going that well behind the scenes. So yeah. they parted ways with 4AD. Um uh, following the next record, which of course is Heaven or Las Vegas in 1990 um, because of, uh, you know, they were butting heads with uh, Ivo Watts Russell. Liz Fraser is expecting her first child with, um, with Guthrie. Uh, he's starting tons of cocaine. Uh, they are, you know, moving into a different level of
0: success
1: and, you you know, things didn't pan out for either the group or the couple.
0: So this is like nineteen ninety now and the the kind of uh there's sort of an infrastructure for this kind of college rock, right? There's sort of a touring circuit, there's like radio, you know, it's kind of matured um by the time you get to around nineteen ninety um again they're on the major label so you can find the record in the main section of the record shops you know, i think probably 120 minutes is starting to exist on mtv um, you're starting to hear a lot see a lot of bands come around that you know put records out that are kind of in their similar style they're kind of moving almost to elder statesman
1: uh almost every song is excellent i mean you're basically split down the middle between total classics like cherry colored funk pitch the baby ice blink luck the title track and then really good songs like 50-50 Clown, uh, Fats Poetic, Wolf in the Breast, and Road, River, and Rail. Plus, honorable mention, um, the Ice Blink Luck B-side is called Mosaic the Mizan. And that's a, that's a classic. That should have been on the record. I definitely give it five stars.
0: I gave this four. And, you know, I there's one drawback to this record to me that it, it's... this I mean I guess for some people it might be a positive the palette's a little different on this it's a little bit more earthbound it's a little bit more kind of tight and focused and in general the productions and the arrangements don't have that same kind of epic you know huge soundscape cocktail Twins kind of sound this is a kind of more refined sound Um, you know like the drum machines are now we're in the period where they're using quote unquote realistic sounding drum machines so they're kind of not the old kind of janky new wave sounding ones that are obviously artificial. These are drum machines that are kind of meant to sound like a real drummer, but kind of really don't. So that kind of saps it of a little energy for me. But the song craft and the songwriting, the material is very strong. Um, where almost really every song has a good hook. or. It, it's, a good... At,
1: it's definitely at a peak. I mean, you know, there's two clear peaks to me in their career yeah. and that's treasure and heaven or like Lost i can't Famous. rate
0: this as high as treasure because the production aesthetic to me and the sound world that treasure exists in is on another plane I, I you know maybe i'll upgrade this to four and a half
1: i i, I give it a solid five i think it's a fantastic record
0: it's, by the way the song cherry colored funk um it should come with a warning sticker that says does not contain funk <laughs> truth and then um, the following song, Pitch the Baby, you know, it, you actually know, it, does contain funk. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they mixed up the titles. <clears throat> That's more ironic than anything Mara said, ever put her pen to. It's like a fly in your Chardonnay.
1: <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's interesting. The, these guys belong in that pantheon of bands that worked for so long, for so hard, uh, so hard for success. And when they finally achieved it, the second they achieve it, uh, they, they blow it. Which brings us to Four Calendar Cafe, which they released in 1993. Uh, Fraser and, Gut- and Guthrie have ended their relationship. They have, uh, they're waiting three years in between albums now. So it's now it's 1993. Um, and the album was basically a response to everything that was uh, fucking them up in the last three years, including Guthrie entering rehab and quitting alcohol and drugs. And Fraser undergoing psychotherapy, so now she's in touch with who she is. It's clear what she's singing about, and it's very good. But it's a different thing.
0: Yeah, the ambi- the kind of ambiguity is gone, gone, right? And it's a lot more literal. And even the way the record is arranged and performed, the you know the instruments are all more distinguishable. Things are hard pan left and right. You can pick out every instrument. It's not just this sort of sea of of sounds. And so, Regardless
1: of that, do you think that there's great stuff on this?
0: No, and the songwriting also st- takes a step back, too. There's there's a couple I like. Oil of Angels is my favorite song. That, record, that's a probably. great one. And Bluebeard's great. Yeah, Evangeline, that's a pretty nice Evangeline, ballad. Evangeline, Know Who You Are at Every Age So they still good. They still have good songs. Theft um, and Wandering Around Lost. I almost feel like with with the Band Like the Coctows the, the arrangement and the production and the and the, the the sound world that it creates is more obviously the songs are important too, that they have that they're interesting melodically and they go to places, but the the, the, uh, the when they lose the magic, the fairy dust of the of the, this kind of sound world they create, that's a kind of a big loss it's a big loss
1: because now uh you know they so they're born from this sort of uh, spiky angular (laughs) post-punk thing and they become this celestial powerhouse with this intense kick to them and then when you remove the intensity what you basically have is spa music Mm -hmm. and this is kind of the territory this floats around in very amniotic uh songwriting not quite as good But still in the mold of Heaven or Las Vegas, I give it three and a half
0: stars. I give this one three. This one I didn't really like as much, but there are unquestionably like a handful of really good songs on it.
1: And then, you know, in 93, they also released this thing called the Snow EP. I don't want to hear the Cocteau Twins doing this stuff.
0: Well, okay, the two songs are uh, "Winter Wonderland." It's a Christmas album. Well, the Christmas single, really. Two, yeah, two Christmas songs. single. You get "Winter Wonderland," which all right. And Frosty okay, "Frosty the Snowman," but, <laughs> which is so weird to me. <laughs> it's so weird that 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 exists. I just can't. I hate. I, look, I also I hate Christmas music. Christmas music is by nature music that has like no tension in it whatsoever. It's music, It's like it's. Um, I you know. So let me ask Christmas you that. Christmas music and so, most Christmas music makes me like let's just, say you're, I need, let's, I need to go put on a deep purple record or something when it's let's over say to Let's the say you're
1: tasked with creating a Christmas record, okay? So is there a reason to drag countercultural deadweight into a Christmas album project just to put your a sort of unique imprint on the format or you think just respect? Oh, these, these, it's a st-
0: <laughs> these covers are pretty straightforward <laughs> they are they are
1: there's absolutely no reason to put this on <laughs> they're
0: like it's not even like okay it's this psychedelic like mind fuck of a cover of frosty the snowman you know it's what? just there's like straight up frosty the snowman
1: there's nothing wrong with it or right i just give it i give it three uh, stars i gave it, I just, I gave know, it one star
0: because fuck christmas music yeah exactly
1: exactly so then you get an EP in '95. Now it's two years later, only an EP. These guys are obviously falling to bits. Uh, Twin Lights is a mainly acoustic recording, um, wh- which is basically, you know, kind of an unplugged effort, right? So there's four tracks on this, two of which were redone for Milk and Kisses, their next record. Um, and then Pink, Orange, Red, which was. Released on the uh, Tiny Dynamite EP back in 85 in a stripped down version with a piano playing the melody and Golden Vein is
0: the only track on the EP not to appear on any other release. So at
1: this point, they're staggering to a close.
0: Yeah. So you think this one was maybe done like to cash in on the... MTV Unplugged Craze or something. It's Apparently
1: this was her exorcism of having a crush on Jeff Buckley. <laughs> right. no, no kidding. Oh, right. Yeah, I did read that. But it fucking sounds like Tori Amos or something. Well, shit.
0: it sounds like it's kind of sounds like generic coffee house. Well, that's not really true, but it's in that coffee house acoustic kind of 90s It's thing. not good.
1: I, I give it 2 stars. I don't like I'm it. I'm not I'm not a fan.
0: You know, I, around that time in the mid '90s, I moved moved around a lot. I lived in a lot of different places, and I, I have this this distinct memory of like always like looking for like when I'm looking for my new place and thinking, oh, there well, wow, there's a cool coffee shop on the corner, and that was like a really important thing. And then I would never visit the coffee shop. <laughs> I what don't, was the coffee shop? It doesn't matter. Wherever I lived, well, there no, was just a, name one. Bauhaus Coffee Shop in Seattle. Okay. Okay, I would think it was called Bauhaus. I think that's what it was called. Anyway. I maybe went a couple of times. I thought I was going to yeah, go yeah. there and there's going to be this like it's amazing salon kind of atmosphere. It, it's more important. That and you're all these sure all the these title. intellectuals would be there and it would be this very stimulating sort of thing. And I don't even drink coffee. So, um, and I never really became part of any coffee house scene, but for years I would think, Oh wow. cool. Yeah. This neighborhood's great. There's a great coffee shop on the corner. So
1: Cocteau twins became, so this is, this.
0: this is, well, this is from that era and it's very coffee housey. So it is very coffee, probably in some of the, I guarantee you in some of those coffee houses, this record was like a mainstay. On the, so, yeah.
1: so, you know, moving into 96, what did I give?
0: I gave it two stars. I think
1: moving into 90, two stars, two stars. Yeah. So we're in agreement yeah. on that one. These guys, unfortunately, kind of peter to a close, as uh, is
0: the story in so many discographies.
1: It's true. It's sometimes, as in Bad sometimes Finger, you do fade away. As in Badfinger, you truly go out with all kinds of bangs. Yeah, but um, you know, notwithstanding their two shitty last albums, <laughs> so Milk and Kisses in '96. Um, you know, now we're it. You know, the guitars are more hev- heavily layered, and uh, Fraser's trying to obscure her lyrics again. But not not completely. The band is augmented with an extra guitarist and a drummer. Um, and this is their last record. It's kind of a half hearted effort. There's a couple of couple of good tracks. Serpent uh, Serpent Skirt.
0: That's the one I like the best.
1: A Pair Do. and Calfskin Smack isn't half bad. But this is not a great album and it's not essential. I give it two and a half stars. That's what I gave
0: it. yeah. Anyway, yeah. These what guys
1: know? you know, these guys fucking petered to a close.
0: So yeah, the the parts of their last few records that are less successful, you know, basically they lost the the, the last the the probably pretty much the last three releases kind of lose that sense of great arrangement and production and creating that sound world that's so key to their that Look, that, that when, that's the, that's the stuff I really like. When these guys so, were
1: when these guys were truly on fucking fire, they lifted you aloft. You felt like you. For me, I feel like I'm fucking floating or flying when i'm listening to their best stuff yeah but when they're not reaching for those great heights it's just lazy because yeah and i can think it's well i think it's reverb. also
0: reflected in the way that they i think a lot of that comes from what, what i refer to as arrangement it's like there's just that there's not stuff in the songs that lifts them to that next quality like some of those like epic guitar bits and like where they're really like cranking the reverb and making you know, these like the big explosive sections at the end of their songs, they're just not putting that stuff in there anymore. It's like yeah. it's it's sort of like what I like about it's sort them of is more it's, basic. You know, it's
1: not about verses and choruses for these guys. It's about trying to stretch out intense parts because they're not. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but they seem like self trained. So they're just like stitching cool parts together instead of. You know, actually constructing songs. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so their whole career is basically one long reach for the divine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they were at their best when they kept you high up, I think. Okay. So for my top three, uh, I would have to say I've actually surprised myself. I've given myself a rule, which is no EPs, because if I count EPs, I think the list might just be all EPs from the Flagstones, Spangle Maker. I mean, these are essential releases i'm not including them for this time out so number three is i do count the moon and melodies the one with harold budd i think it's an amazing record uh number two uh is gonna have to go to heaven or las vegas and number one is treasure my worst album award for the cocteau twins goes to their first album garlands which just goes to
0: show you that I'm not just that guy that only likes the early stuff. <laughs> Terrific. Okay, top three for me. This is kind of a hard one to do for me because um, the, you could really arrange. There, all of these are kind of close ties for me, but, but for, I'm going to go with number three, um, Victoria Land. Um, number two, Heaven in Las Vegas. And uh, number one, also Treasure. Um, those two kind of seem to be maybe the, maybe the the cut above the you know those top two and then uh, yeah, I could put a bunch of other things at number three I feel like I could have maybe could have gone with Bluebell at three mm-hmm. I went with I could have gone with the Harold Budd record Bluebell Knoll was close yeah. Um, for the worst one, yeah, I would also uh, select Garland's with an honorable mention for worst album for Milk and Kisses, um, but um, yeah, the official worst album goes to Garland's. If
1: I had to pick the worst release, it would be Peppermint Pig.
0: Right, but yeah, um, you know, and then the EPs definitely all very essential there in their own right. There, this is a band where the EPs are really as important as the records. Um, so don't overlook those. Nope. Go on the playlist and scarf them down. This is going to be a sick playlist, so enjoy.
1: But that that notwithstanding, the best way to consume their music is on our motherfucking unassailable playlist on discograffiti.com. They are a very playlist-friendly band. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most of the entirety of Treasure and Heaven or La- uh, Las Vegas is going to be on that as well. But more importantly, those playlists, plucked songs from those EPs that Robert put together on that tape a long time we're going to do you
0: proud Robert
1: so if you're listening I appreciate it and to whoever else who's gotten this far tune into the next episode of Disco until then we will be haunting your soundscape if all goes well
0: see you next time